All right, we're live. What's up, guys? John Sentez, Cass Kreitlow here. We got a multi-cam situation. Still trying to figure it out. First day on the job, you know. Um, Cutteration Podcast 56. Uh, first thing, don't forget to rate, review, subscribe. Check out the online store. We got hats. We're doing remote training. Awesome stuff. But without further ado, welcome to the show, Wes and Jermaine and Jamie Dustash. Dustash. Yeah. You did all right. Stay, You're good. Right, from there. Yeah. How you guys doing? Good. How are you? Pretty good. Awesome. Awesome. Why don't you guys introduce yourself? Uh, uh, let everybody know where you're at, um, what your backgrounds are, and, and uh, then we can move on from there. Yeah, sounds good. Uh, so I'm from Bay City, Michigan originally. Um, grew up there, played ball there in high school, played a couple years of junior college in Michigan as well. And then essentially I've been coaching ever since. I finished playing in 2008. So I started coaching in 2009. Uh, was a high school teacher for three years doing the coaching and teaching thing. And then eventually made the jump to coaching college ball. Coached for a year at a junior college in Michigan, Grand Rapids Community College. And then moved to Minnesota uh, at the end of that year. And that's when I started working at Hamlin. Uh, so I've been the pitching coach at Hamlin University for the past four years and just opened up Mill City Throwing this past fall. So that's kind of how I ended up meeting Cass was at Hamlin and just started that business this past fall. And I'm Jamie Dustash. Um, I'm an athletic trainer, so a little different background than you guys. But um, I'm originally from Wisconsin, just outside of the Milwaukee area. Went to school in Stevens Point, um, played basketball there, majored in athletic training, minored in psychology. Um, sat for my board's exam there and could have gone to work right away as an athletic trainer, but decided that I wanted to kind of continue my education, learn a little bit more. So I went out west to the PNW and got my master's at the University of Oregon in human physiology and a concentration in sports med. Um, I worked in the cadaver labs teaching anatomy, and then I also uh, did athletic training out there for a couple of the sports teams. Then I made my way back to Minnesota because I miss my family and um, wanted to find a job that was back in the D3 setting just because I really like that setting. Obviously, there are some things that I miss about Division One, but D3 is still great. Um, uh, so I found this job at Hamlin, really liked that it had a sports ortho or had an orthopedic center that hired the sports medicine staff. So we follow the medical model there. And I got the job at Hamlin. That's how I know Wes. Obviously, I work with baseball. But I also have women's soccer, women's basketball, and men's and women's swim and dive. So, um, yeah, quite, quite a bit of sports. Um, but don't tell, but baseball is my favorite. Um, and, Cass, I must have just missed you because you left, I think, the year before I got there. So I started fall of 2018 there. Um, but I did get to meet you out in Arizona for, like, a brief period before a game when we were out there traveling. I don't know if you remember that, but... I know we were just of like course. excitingly talking about something. Like we both had a lot of energy. Um, and I think you might've just this been, no yeah, way. right. <laughs> I think uh, you might've just been starting at your job that you're at right now. Um, I, I had went full time, forward. like right before that. So okay, I had been full time there like a minute. Yeah. So yeah. I just remember talking about that like a little six bit. six months. Anyway. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> no, no worries. That's it. I mean, now I live in Minneapolis and i um, going to be at Hamlin for a little bit. Don't know. How long but working with Wes yeah well this is an exciting conversation because the um, you know the the college uh, experience is is uh, something that we try to educate and you can't really 
God, you just can't, you could tell a high school kid exactly what's going to happen every day. And they're still just not going to accept it because it's such a learning experience. And like how to not be an idiot, you know, (laughs) pretty much. (laughs) Okay. I want to, I want to kind of like steer this in a certain direction. So I'm just going to talk about a little bit how Weston and I's relationship has evolved because it's uh, it's a good story and it's worth telling. So um, I'm going to kind of rewind everybody and get you, get you all to know where I'm thinking in 2000. This was 15, 16, somewhere in that. It, it was somewhere around that. 16. So um, Fall of 15. Yeah. So I'm going no filter right now. Um, and so this is just timeline stuff. So at this time in my coaching career, I was still um, like – uh, top velocity's number one fan. Like I'm, I'm calling them. Um, I'm texting them. I'm, I'm asking questions on their show all the time. And, and this was good because, um, Brent Horsio's content is very informative and will teach you a lot about how the human body is and how it can work. Um, um, and, but also at the time, this was the year that driveline is really blowing up and I'm somebody who's always looking to learn things and so I'm reading up as much as I possibly can. And I'm realizing that I can listen to both of them and learn from both of them. And I don't necessarily have to pick a side. Um, and, and so anyway, that's kind of where I was at right now. And I had been doing, I had, that was my first year. So I had um, been the pitching coach one year um, and I had shared the duty with uh, Zach Brodigam, uh, another Hamlin, uh, former Hamlin baseball player. And um yeah. And then, so he had moved on and we were looking for another guy and Wes was one of the first people that we interviewed. Um, so I just remember sitting down and he was good enough at convincing me that he had, he was pretty into these conversations and um, well-read. And um, the point is, is that he clearly had a, had a big interest in figuring out more because our conversation has come a long way from that first interview with us. Um, but um, it was it was really impressive, and and I will still say this: um, one of the most impressive things about Wes is the he is always confident at being in the conversation, and and that was one of the first things that I learned from him was um, you don't always have to agree with people, um, but you do have to think about what you're trying to say, and um, if you do, you can you can be in a lot of conversations. So um, yeah, he's always been good at that. What's up? Well, I- I, well, I think it's important that I share a little bit of my side of that, like my yeah. meeting, because we have different, like, I think it's, it's, it's interesting. So, so basically just a really quick recap was that I, I coached that year at Grand Rapids Community College and my wife and I had lived in Minnesota for one year previous to that. So she had done an internship. We moved back to Michigan and over the course of that year, when I'm at Grand Rapids, we decide we miss the Twin Cities. We want to move back. So I cold call every college within 45 minutes of the Twin Cities looking for somebody that needs a pitching coach. It's a lot of colleges. Um, and it, it was, <laughs> and very few responses. Um, so Jim Wyant, our head coach at Hamlin, was one of the few guys that gets back to me and he tells me that the pitching coach, the, the guy that was helping cast had just left, so the timing was good, so they want to set up a meeting. Okay, so I'm excited. I'm going to go to this meeting. I come in. And khakis and a button down, like first impressions are key, right? So I go into Jimmy's office and Cass is sitting there in basketball shorts, like camo tights, and I'm like a hat on backwards. And I'm like, okay. That's what he's wearing like, right now. Of course it is. Of course it is. He's turned the hat around to be a little more formal. But like, so I sit down and I'm like, okay, like I just, 
great. So I start talking and he's asking me some questions. And to be honest, at this point, I'm like t- big toe deep in the shallow end of understanding pitching mechanics or movement. I, I was coaching the way that I had been coached all growing up. Like we were still running poles. We were still running or doing towel drill. I'm over cueing like crazy, like young coach type things, but also doing things that I was coached. Um, and so he starts talking, he asked me about how I coach pitchers. And I had recently been training p- pitchers at a facility that was big into like the Tom house and the NPA model. So I regurgitated some things that I had heard. Like I didn't have a deep knowledge of this, but I was like, well, you know, you want to get down the mound as far as you can, as fast as you can. And like just things that I had heard basically. Um, and he starts talking about Kyle Bodie and Brent Porcio. And I'm like, I, I don't even know who these people are. Like, I, I don't know. And apparently I like, I, I opted towards don't say like, don't prove yourself to be a fool, right? Just stay silent and nod your head and act like you're thinking about things. And Cass apparently got a good enough impression of me that he but, wanted but to bring the me on. Stuff. Okay. So for the record, the Tom House stuff and the NPA stuff, at least you like, that's the beginning. Like that's where you start. This is what existed at the time. Right. But I, but my point is, is that I, like, I, I had a very surface level knowledge of even that, but so, so we met in like May and I went and I coached in the Great Lakes Collegiate Baseball League um, with under Chris O'Neill, who's at Bucknell right now. And I'm, so I listen to you and you're talking about these guys that I've never heard of before. And then I go and I live with Chris for a couple months in the summer and every day he's reading, he's listening to podcasts, he's taking information. And I had the realization that like, holy cow, if I want to hang out in the college game for very long, I need to like, I need to pick up some knowledge. I need to start reading. I need to start listening. I need to start figuring out who these people are. Um, and I would say like that four months of talking to you, living with him, and then starting with you in the fall, like set me up for the last four years of, you know, just trying to get better at coaching and trying to have a better Aww. understanding of what we're doing. That was, I mean, that was adorable. That was sweet. I, I had been <laughs> coaching for five or six years and I, like I worked hard at coaching, but I wasn't working hard at learning more about coaching and finding yeah, the things that no. I didn't know. Totally. So, and what, what year was that? So we started in, but I think 16 was the first season we coached together. So that was the summer of 15, I believe. Cool. Wow. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, okay. Wow. That was, that's intense. That's intense. So he said he's, what did, what did you want okay. to hear it? So, so since then, so I left, um, Minnesota. So my last year coaching was 2018 that summer. And then I went and coached in the Northwoods and, and then I moved to California. And so the first five weeks I was here, I was at another facility and uh, Wes and I were talking back and forth. Like he was the one of the, one of the people that I went and walked my dog with and um, called up Wes and my dogs actually. And um, so it's, it's so crazy because the, the Twin Cities orthopedics things happen. So Mill City throwing is happening. We've been having these conversations um, from a distance and it's been fun to <clears throat> that. That part was kind of um, when we were working together, Wes was a little bit more on the mental side of things. Like it was just something that we had to compartmentalize just because multiple voices can be a, a tough thing. And so um, that's been fun to have that relationship grow. So anyway, we've just gone back and forth uh what he's doing in Minnesota and what I've been doing in Minnesota. And um, it's been fun for me because I'm, I will forever be a Piper and I will never let that go. Um, and so staying connected to the program in any way that I can is usually, usually in my interest. So 
anyway, that kind of gets you caught up. I don't really know what else to say. We got, we got the point across. So, um, <laughs> I, I will say I'll, I'll tee it up for Jamie a little bit. And unless Wes, you have anything else to say, cut me off here. But, um, so right when I got here, so I went, I started working with John December 5th of 2018 and March is the Hamlin spring trip. And so I know for a fact it was uh, March 16th of 2019 was my first day full time. And that trip is like that next weekend. Yeah. And so I went out there. And so what I was so jacked up about, and I, I, I will not stop talking about this, this, <coughs> this story because the three rules are continuing to be something that they're not going away. Whether people like, whether it becomes something that sweeps the nation and everybody uses them is not my point. Like these are things that, simplify throwing um quite a bit and so anyway this is just like something that we talk about jamie with the hands i don't even know if i articulated this well at the time but there were just so many things that john has done um that are different than how people do it right and so the rules were were one of those things and then there were other things where i like i it wasn't as um, not, and this isn't not anything personal. We, it was just a lot of communication of getting on the same page of understanding what he was doing, you know? So now I'm just able to more um, accurately articulate some of the things that we're, we're doing well. Right. And that would be, Hey, we're, we're teaching kids to throw the ball a lot harder than they, they were not too long ago. And they seem to be staying healthy and we have a pretty good understanding of what unhealthy looks like. And, um, kids will, kids will undoubtedly tell you lies. They will not be honest with you how their arm feels. Right. And so your ability, when you say psychology minor, I'm like, good, good. Because these are the things that I'm like, I have to, I've, I've done so much psychology background in the past year, just because it's like, oh my gosh, this is the gateway into helping people understand what the heck is going on right now. And like, sometimes kids show up to practice and they could be as focused as they want to be, but they don't realize that they're actually really sad because something bad happened to them yesterday and they're not actually paying attention to it. And now they have the worst practice of their life. And this turns into like five, you know, five days later, it's the yips. Like this stuff is real stuff that happens all of the time. And so Scary. anyway, um, mental I, I don't know. I, that, that's kind of, that's kind of the, how I know everybody here. So <laughs> Um, do you guys, Jamie, do you want to add anything about, uh, yeah. Anybody have anything else or should we just get right into what you guys are up to? Enough talking about us. I think we should get into it. Is everybody's vocal cords warmed up or we, yeah, we yeah. There? <laughs> I know Cass's are Yeah, 15 minutes in. <laughs> just kidding. Hey, we're here. Okay. <laughs> I yeah. love it. Question. Questions. Let's do it. Okay. Um, so Wes has been working with modus sleeve. Um, let's just jump in. Tell us about what you're doing. Um, so basically, over the course of the past year, I've been learning more and more about the the modus sleeve and kind of how to use it. Started, kind of came onto my radar at the ABCA convention in 2019 when Brian Conger did his presentation. Um, but he was presenting it as a way to like manage your pitching staff and the the workload of you know 15 or in our case 20 plus pitchers. Um, and financially, that wasn't really going to be in the cards for us anytime soon to have a pitching staff that had 25 modus sleeves. Um, so we basically have directed our efforts towards return to throw protocols uh, because we, while we can't have 25 modus sleeves, we can't have, you know, a couple. 
And so basically starting in 2019, uh, Jamie and I were rehabbing a, a, a minor UCL sprain, essentially. And when I say we, I mean her. Um, she does all of the the rehabbing and the return to throw stuff, um, just kind of specifying the difference between return to throw and return to play or return to competition the way we talk about it. The return to throw stuff is all the stuff that that Jamie does on the front end, um, which she can talk more about. Um, but everything getting to the point where we pick up a ball. Do you want to talk about that a little bit right now, Jamie? Just like sure. I mean, first off, it's not everything that I do. The athlete does the majority of the work. Right, I right, just help right. guide them to get there. But um, yeah, return to throw. I mean, I can't speak for all other athletic trainers or all other physical therapists, but I'm a pretty big um, criteria-based rehab interventions and making sure that we meet objective goals before moving forward. Now, I'm not saying that's all I use. Obviously, like Cass just said before, there's a huge mental component to it, subjective um, component to it. But Basically, I have these milestones that I want them to meet um, range of motion, strength, stability and motor control, and then plyometrics and return to throw type um, throwing. So from a range of motion standpoint, and this is not only over the course of the entire rehab, but also like, hey, I want you to be able to meet this before we can move on to this. For example, I want you to be able to meet the um, the isometric and isotonic strength components before we move to plyometrics and weight bearing and neuromuscular control kind of thing. Um, Mike Reinold always says like, you can't stabilize a weak muscle. So you got to make sure that you get that strength component. Um, But anyway, so we focus on overhead flexion, meeting, being within five degrees of the other arm, the non-throwing arm. We focus on total range of motion. um, Let's see, horizontal adduction with certain measurements. Those are some of the hip range of motions, internal and external rotations. We're not focusing just on the elbow. We're looking at shoulder, wrist, hip, single leg balance. Um, looking at strength measurements I have, we have are lucky enough to have a handheld dynamometer that we use, not rich enough to have a biodex, which I would love to have. But um, so we use some of those measurements to be able to pass those strength tests and then specific plyometric and endurance based tests. Um, I can send along those articles if you guys are ever interested or um, hopefully we'll be posting a blog post soon on Mill City Throwing about just a little bit more specifics in terms of the criteria I like to have them meet. Um, I can send our email data. I would love if you send me anything that you have right now, like anything informative, send it my way. I would love to share it with other people. Definitely. Um, With that being said, like I said before, I never want to be that tagline paralysis by analysis, you know, so there is that large component of subjective measures. We think about how the athlete feels, the um, rate of perceived exertion on the certain measurements. We look at soreness, pain, et cetera. So basically the return to throw process, we should be getting them to a point where they're like itching to throw. They feel the most confident that they ever had from their standpoint. And I want to be able to back that up with the numbers of their confidence that they have with throwing. So that's kind of a really quick overview of what I do in the athletic training room before we go out to the field with Wes. That's a lot. Yeah. I mean, it should be right. You have an arm that whether or not they had surgery, I mean, they're putting the most stress they need on that arm when they're throwing, like throwing is not good for you. So we need to be able to make sure that they have the most sorry if i just said a bad (laughs) it's not good for the stress on your elbow or your ucl ligaments now in other aspects it might be good for you but like we need to make sure that they're ready to endure those stresses on the body that they're going to take when they're throwing however many pitches 
even if they're a catcher or an infielder or what whatnot. Okay. Uh, all right. There's a lot there. Pro Sorry. <laughs> so uh, let me just throw my uh, injury out, and you'll enjoy it. I had an invul. I had an 85% fracture of the of the olecranon uh, invulsion uh, in a game, and uh, it was an entirely due to how I was throwing. Yeah. How old are sure. you? Well, uh, 22. Wow, that's um, interesting. Usually, those are younger. Thank you. Appreciate that. <laughs> um, definitely know the way I was throwing was not working. So uh, anyway, that being said, uh, um, two titanium screws. I'm still, you know, I can still run up to 90 at 34. Um, you know, like I'm fine. So even like everything that you said, the experience that I had, um, I had, I had uh, my surgery at the Andrews Institute in Pensacola, Florida which is where I went to school. I'm from an hour from there. Nice. And um, I went through four physical therapy centers because of information that I was starting to learn and come up with. Um, and finally went back to the one I had ACL reconstruction also when I was in high school on my right side. Um, but that being said, everything that has gotten me to today has is from the birth of why did, why was I throwing so hard before and my arm never hurt, right? And the word stress to me never was a thing. I was known as a rubber arm guy that could throw all day. Um, and, and then when I, I distinctly remember making this change of this Tom House, both hands type of movement and immediately started feeling weird stuff and deteriorated in a matter of, let's see, it was April. So we're talking six months, six months. I, I went from 95 in the summer to fracture right and it was just it was just small hammering from there so and i think one of the things that i i um when when you say stress and things like that as a, as a player not as a as a coach you know you always think about well stress is bad and, and things from there and so one of the things that we always try to talk about is like pain-free throwing like you you said that throwing is an unnatural movement and i would argue that like throwing is the most evolved movement of humans because we've been chucking stuff at animals for a long time. Right. And so, you know, there, there is a biomechanical reasons to why things happen. Right. As far as like why stresses would happen in certain things. But I can tell you that I can throw the baseball as hard as I want and not feel a thing. So the word stress feels weird to me. Is that okay? That yeah, I get that. But I guess I think of stress. I don't think stress is always a bad thing, right? I mean, there's definitely a difference between good stress and bad stress. And I think that you have to have enough stress to be able to handle more stress kind of thing. So I don't always think of stress as bad, I guess. I mean, maybe we come up with a different word for it, right? So that we're all on the same page. But um, I would I would agree with you that throwing it is an involved movement. I guess I should rephrase and say that pitching at the higher velocities as we continue to pitch faster, as we continue to pitch more, I think those are what our body needs to be prepared for. Does that make more sense? Yeah, no, that's a better, so like uh, as an athlete, right? I, I distinctly remember we had a big phys, uh, uh, physical training, I'm sorry, sorry, um, uh, training school, I guess you could say. We had like 20 interns running around of, of kids that all wanted to be, part, you know, athletic trainers, athletic training school, I'm sorry. I it's okay. Word for a second. Um, uh, anyway, but we had, you know, and then on top of the 20, there were like eight, um, you know, the certified, certified people like you, yeah. right? And then we had the the top one, right? And I remember my arm hurting and just like having a powwow about it, getting there, and then like nobody knew, 
right? That I, because I, it was a weird thing where I, I had an acute injury, right? And then uh, it happened on the road. I came back Monday, went to the doctor, and all the swelling was gone. So they were confused, right? And they were like, well, maybe you just strain it. So then I went to the doctor. There was this giant delay process that understanding how it works now, it's like I'm just waiting oh man, on the totem pole for them to even care enough to to move the thing, right? They, they see a dollar sign to me. So as, as I was to the people, it was like, well, we have this doctor's appointment and then this and this, this, you know what I mean? So my, yeah. my I mean, that's process was, what's I was that? just saying, that's unfortunate. I mean, I don't, it stinks to hear that athletes have been thought of like as a dollar sign or a number or just like a low guy on the totem pole. Right. Like, I mean, whether the guy's the starting pitcher or whether you work for division three, which is why I kind of went back to division three, the athletic trainer, like that's our job to advocate for every single person on the team, you know, whether they don't play, whether they do play, whether they're starting lineup, whatnot. So I feel, I feel bad that that was your experience. Well, one, one would think, you know, but when you get, when, when the, the entire, when, you know, we ended up having, it got weird. I ended up having to get a lawyer involved and write a letter to the president of the school because they were denying care. They told me that I was faking it and this, you know, there was nothing wrong with my arm. It was just super gnarly situation. Learned so much from it, though. It was, you know, just like understanding really what was going on with it. And then it kind of drove me to refigure out how to throw, um, you know, pain-free, which I, you know, he's seen me. I can, I can get hot in like five throws and just like rip it, you know, and I'm <laughs> absolutely fine. And so the rules that he talks about, there, there are things that happen, you know, as a, um, as a thrower and even you – know, I have a question I wanted to ask you because there's a thing that we're kind of on um, on the personal training side. And I don't know if this is a thing, but it makes sense to me. And I want to know if your brain processes it uh, better than what I say. So um, I don't think your arm should hit your body when you're throwing. I think that it should pass through and have the most amount of time of deceleration. And I see some injuries or what looks like a bad body position where like, for example, Jordan Hicks holds pronation after he throws it. And then his elbow seems to run into his rib cage at hundred miles an hour. And I just don't feel like over time that the body can handle, like, cause I'm thinking impact damage. I understand where the nerves are, the ulnar nerve and everything that's exposed right there in the elbow. There's a lot of things that are happening inside the shoulder that are pinched when it hits positions that, um, it's just a, it, it, I've never heard anybody say it and we've been saying it for a little while. And, and I feel like, you know, as far as um, it, what I generally don't understand about physics, but understand about physics is like you need um, distance to decelerate after an acceleration period, you know, and if you don't give your arm the distance to do it, then you, we start seeing where the failures happen, where you can't slow your arm down and you can't do all these things. Right. And so there's, there's these weird things that happen that I've seen in my career. Like I saw a 12 year old throw 90. I saw a 14 year old throw 95. I saw a 40 year old throw a hundred. Like I'm confused at like what people are saying about this throwing thing, because I've seen so many different ranges and styles and methods and trainings, right. That when I see a very packaged physical therapy type of movement, talking about movement in the body, I just go, well, Maybe that's just a way, like maybe that's just one thing. And I'm, and I'm not trying to discredit what um, the physical therapy, because I, I understand the anatomy side and the way you guys are coming at it. You know what I mean? Like it makes when, when you say the things you're saying about preparing for the stress level and stuff, like you think of exercises and, and other things, correct? Yeah, for the most part. I, I think 
I think about how Koreans throw 300 pitch bullpens and that starts at like 12 and they just build up. And if you get to, uh, if you go to a Korean baseball game at a 16 U game, like my buddy coached against that the starting pitcher for the Korean team started warming up in the bullpen an hour before the game. And he was at the field like three hours. Right. And then when he started the pitcher that was following him, who came in the fourth, went pitch for pitch with the guy in the bullpen, just staying ready. It was a completely different system that I was, you know, evolving into. So before we get there, the first, the question about arm hitting the body, do you have any thoughts on that? I, I mean, ever since Cass, ever since I started talking to Cass about the three rules, that has been one that has made like the, the hands not cross, or I'm sorry, the front, the throwing arm finishing past the front hip has always been one that made sense to me that you would want to give your arm a clear path through deceleration. Like that, that is something that, that made sense. And it was articulated well within the three rules, just that like, you don't want your arm slamming into your body. You have to give your arm time to decelerate. And I don't know physiologically what happens like when, when your arm does slam into your body, but logically it makes sense to me that you would want to give your arm a clear path to decelerate. Like, and, and who knows what the biomechanics data would say, but that made logical sense to me from the first time that I heard it. Well, that's, that's cool. And Jamie? Yeah, no, I agree with that. I mean, if you have more room to decelerate, you don't have to take as quick of a stop. You don't have to take as choppy of a stop. So yeah, I would agree with that from like a biomechanic standpoint. Now I can't speak to exactly what happens to each body part during that time, but I mean, it makes sense in my head too. Yeah. Yeah, there's because there's a weird thing, and I'm sure you know Wes and I are about the same age. There's there was a thing where it was called like arm recoil that people were saying that it was bad, right? And you would you'd want to keep your arm down low. And to me, it just looked like someone was holding on to their arm intentionally. And then one of those things I started seeing with those like those everybody that threw above 90, and then I started seeing these guys throwing above 92, is that their arm would just do it. They would it would just go there and then just come back. And I'm like, well, how is it bad? And then we started seeing guys like. Uh, Jordani Ventura and like Pedro Martinez and they're finishing with their arm all the way back this way, completely returning in the direction that they went to. I'm sorry. I almost hit you. Um, uh, you know, you know, and so I don't know, you know, if I get a chance to ask physical therapists about this, uh, you know, this idea, this is an idea. And Wes help me out. If you, I just don't hear people talking about it as far as like, understanding because we just clean up a lot of on our side personally in our program we clean up a lot of arm pain with guys once they start understanding that is actually something you need to try to do after release you know yeah yeah i think the deceleration patterns are important i actually was just listening to a, a clinic yesterday from Wes johnson the twins pitching coach where he talks about making sure that elbows don't cross the midline the, the throwing elbow doesn't cross the midline which he I think he is accounting for the fact that your torso is rotating, right? So like you don't want your elbow to come all the way across like this. You want your torso to rotate such that, you know, you give yourself a, a path for deceleration. So I think it's a different way of talking about the same thing that, that you want to give yourself a little bit of a path. Maybe I'm misinterpreting what he was saying during that, that presentation, but no, that would make sense. Right? If this is, yeah. And, and, and like I said, I always go into the kindergarten nerd baseball side of me and I take that and I go, okay, that just means that the arm and the shoulders have to go together in deceleration. Otherwise, if it goes across too much and the arms cross, just like we're saying rule two, you know, so Jamie, are, yeah. I, I don't know if 
Well, can we, maybe we should say the rules. Like, I don't know. Yeah, I was, gonna, I was just literally just going to ask that. I was like, okay, I got rule number one and I think maybe rule number two, yeah. but. Um, okay, no, I'm going to, I'm going to run right now. Okay, so. <laughs> this is what is getting John fired up right now. Okay. There are some two things that I think are, are things that are seemingly admitted in the, in your world that I don't know that we would agree with. So calling us overhead throwers, I think, is a misunderstanding of what's going on. Okay, so that's something. And then the idea, you didn't say um, throwing is unnatural. You didn't say that, right? Uh, but, like, that's another thing. that Those are two topics that I'm not – I'm just saying these are topics that we could, we could have conversations about, okay? So <laughs> when it comes to what, we're, what we do with, with the three rules is that we're focusing on the hands – and we're starting with that, okay? And so where this would be different than what other people are doing in the industry is what people are doing is I'm going to, because energy comes from the ground, I'm going to start from the ground. Um, but I think probably the thing that makes the most sense about the rules from, I suppose we should show them, right? So from, where am I? I didn't know we were getting here, so bear with us. Okay, so from this position, the hands are going to move at the same time. Okay, so what, what John is talking about is this happening where people lift this up and this isn't moving. That was John's experience. Okay, and so this is not a conversation that we hear people talk about as, as simply as this. is just get them to move at the same exact time. If this one moves one inch, this one moves one inch. Symmetry, move, you know, move in sync, be athletic. Like a lot of things can create this. Hand taps, like a lot of different ways. Right. The second rule, admittedly, is probably the most um, argued about rule is that the hand shouldn't cross. OK, so what we want to see is this move happen where you'd be seeing something like this. Okay? And by the way, Wes, I think the, the crossing the midline part is that you would go into elbow flexion. Like it's really obvious with like uh, Justin Verlander that his decel pattern goes right into that. And and and. <sighs> I'm, I'm going on a stretch here a little bit, but what I've been feeling running lately is that the need for the body to want to come back into this. So it just went into, right, complete, like, extension of the shoulder, right? And then it's going to want to recoil back into the opposite, but it's going to go back into that one more time. Like, these are the cycles that our body makes. So it's not like I'm going to bounce out of my shoulder and then just stop bouncing, right? There's a little bit of a elastic part of it. So I'm, I'm just, I literally have never said that in my life. That's just... Uh, a thought that I had when you were talking about the midline thing. Can I can I jump in on one thing on rule number two? So to me, what makes sense is like if you cross your arms as far as you can, like just go as far as you possibly can. You feel it inside the right here. So the range of motion of the but, joint itself seems. But that's like, subjective, John. Huh. Like you, you have to admit that this is this is not necessarily a bad move. Okay. What well, I'm just I'm, I'm just explaining my what I'm saying. That's all I'm saying. Right, right? but that's so, the flaw in it. Right. Okay. Maybe it is. Maybe it isn't. Doesn't matter. I'm just saying what it is. Right. And so when I see guys that their glove stays in front, right, and it stays here, and they go underneath, you feel that a little bit by over exaggerating by reaching right there. So that just doesn't feel comfortable as in comparison to when both hands stay like that and it kind of goes through. Right. When you see the entire body, both shoulders moving together on the fidget spinner for what we talk about, 
That's where it goes. Anyway. And then the argument can be that we don't have enough thoracic mobility to get there, so I can't actually do what I'm trying to do anyway. So anyway, the three rules are simply to try to get them to be here. Hands move in sync at the same time, same rate, same speed. Hands don't cross. I'm just saying that one has the most discrepancies. But then the hands finishing past the front hip, I, I really like that. And I don't think that I would have a hard time arguing that with anybody because um, those things just work. Um, just with the crossing, like um, what's his name? Uh You'll see Garrett Cole sometimes cross, sometimes not. You'll see um, Trevor Bauer do the same thing. So anyway, those that that's getting you caught up with the rules. Um, I want to get back to where you were talking about um, what in your program and what you guys are trying to do. And I think it was something to do with stress. Can we try to yeah. get back to there? Yeah. So so I think going back to what Jamie was talking about with the return to throw process, right? With the the degrees of shoulder flexion, the degrees of hip like internal rotation, external rotation, all the metrics, right, that you have to clear in order to pick up a baseball. Well, what we found, um, so this happened, like I said, in winter of 2019, I had an athlete come up to me, we're, we're playing catch on the floor, and he comes up to me and he says, he's doing his return to, return to play, his return to competition. So he's picking up a ball, he's starting to throw, and he says, Jamie told me that I've got 45 or 25 throws at 40 feet. I'm going to do two sets of that today. And I said, okay, how hard are you going to throw it? Like, because at that point, uh, rate of perceived effort was big to me. I was like, what, what RPE are you going to throw those at? And he was like, uh, she didn't really say, she just said to throw it 45 feet. And so I was like, okay, well, like we'll talk. And so obviously Jamie, I followed up with Jamie after that, that day. And basically we started looking at the return to throw protocols. And what we found was that as objective and as like metric based as some aspects of the return to throw process are, the return to competition process gets really vague. And yeah. it's throw 25 throws at 45 feet, throw <clears throat> 25 throws at 60 feet. And there's not really Wait, great. Hold answer. On. Can you hear me? Yep. Now I can. It's freezing. Yeah. yeah your video is frozen, but I can hear you. Yeah. Guys, we, uh, one second, one second. Okay. Yeah. We, uh, I think it cleaned up. I, I'm so sorry. So you literally from right after you said return to throwing protocol, it was super choppy. Do you mind starting over? Uh, yeah. So I guess I don't know how far I need to go back, but um, basically just the idea that all through the return to throw when the athletes in the training room or with the physical therapist, everything's really objective. It's are your, is your shoulder rotation back to previous levels? Is it within five degrees of the non-throwing side? Like there's these very clear metrics and obviously there's some qualitative data that goes into it that Jamie mentioned um, mental state, pain, soreness, fatigue, all those things. But once they pick up a ball, it was very vague and very subjective as to what they were going to do. Um, you know, we're going to throw it 45 feet. We're going to throw it 60 feet. It was a linear progression and it wasn't really like, it didn't always make sense. So basically mm -hmm. that was when Jamie and I started to both kind of dig into this and look at like, what, what even is this process and how has it arrived at? Um, and at that point we had, no real answers at all other than questions. And the, the thing about return to competition is like, we don't get to tell this athlete to just wait, just sit tight until we figure it out. And then you can, you know, you can continue to progress. So we had to make some adjustments on the fly at that point, And we started to use rate of perceived effort instead of just distance. Um, so we'd say, okay, you're going to throw 25 throws at 45 feet. Let's get up to 60% today or whatever it was. And then we progressed rate of perceived effort along with that distance. 
Um, and, and later found out there are some pretty significant problems with rate of perceived effort and the fact that athletes aren't very good at estimating how hard they're throwing. So if I told you to go out and throw at 50%, John, it's really unlikely that you throw a ball 45 miles an hour. It's much more likely that you throw closer to 60 and call it 50%. So if that makes sense, you're going to end up putting, if you totally. think you're throwing, go ahead. No, I just said totally. It makes sense. Yes. Yeah. So, so, and we, and so we just over time, we've started to kind of adjust. So then that was winter of 2019. And in the fall of 2019, we had another athlete that had a UCL sprain. Um, and this is when we first got a modus sleeve. Um, we didn't really know how to use it, but we knew, like I knew from Brian Conger's presentation at the ABCA that winter, that it was something that I should learn how to use. So I actually had bought one over the summer just to start playing around with and learning the metrics and learning how to use it. And we had this athlete have a UCL sprain. And I said, well, you're going to throw more than I am. You take this and wear it just so we can gather data and use that. And Jamie yeah. actually oversaw that process a lot more than I did because of the D3 contact rule. So she can talk a little bit about the, the UCL sprain and the, the way that it evolved during that chunk. Yeah. I mean, it was obviously super underutilized and I didn't know a lot about it at the time, but um, knew in like a little bit that there was some AC ratios on there, acute chronic workload things um, that I've used before that type of um, workload with like returning an ACL or someone rehabbing like something where they had to return to run. And it was, I was watching these numbers that he was wearing it. And I was just like, what are we doing with this? Like we were watching the spikes go. We were like, I, we had no idea. Right. I mean, um, we started to like take data from the live throws that they all show, like all the metrics that the modus sleeve gives us, but we just didn't know what to do with it yet. Um, so we started changing things as the return to throw protocol that we were using, which was the ASMI protocol. Um, and we started kind of tweaking things like as he went through the return to throw. So like, how hard should he be throwing? Like Wes said, we started using RPE until we got to a mound. Then we started using a radar gun. This is kind of where we started to cap velocities based on his previously maxed intensity. Um, I mean, there was just so many questions and I actually just reached out to him the other day and just asked like, do you remember what was all frustrating? And it was like the crow hop, the use of a crow hop at such a short distance. Like why am I taking a jump and a step to throw 45 feet? Um, he was frustrated that he went all the way out to 160 feet at full intensity. Then when we came back onto a mound, he had to go back to 50% off of a mound. He didn't understand like why we couldn't incorporate breaking balls earlier. Why? And I was just like, I don't have the answers, which obviously frustrated me. So then Wes and I sat down again. Um, I mean, and you can speak about this next one, Wes, but, um, we just decided like, we need to, we need to improve this because yeah. yes, even though his started to be a little bit more objective as we got to the later stages of his return to throw, it still like wasn't the best that it could be. Yeah. So, and, and just to clarify, we're talking about AC ratio. People aren't really familiar with it, but the, yeah. like acute, the acute, it, it references an acute to chronic workload ratio. So an acute workload is the average one day workload over the past seven days. And your chronic workload is your average one day workload over the past 28 days. So if you think of chronic workload, just as like you're throwing fists, <coughs> essentially, what, what workload have you put into your arm? Um, to, to get a base of, of fitness. And then your acute workload is your most recent throwing. Your one-day workload is how much stress did you put on your arm today? Mm -hmm. So there's been research um, by Tim Gabbett and um, Dr. Mehta about once you get over 1.3 on your AC ratio, so your workload, your acute workload is going up by more than 30% of 
your chronic workload, you're at like a 26 times increase for risk of injury. So that's what we consider as an, uh, an acute to chronic ratio spike. So, yeah. And just to caveat that, there is no like direct correlation. There is association. So it's just showing that you're at a more increased risk among, among other things. So Tim yeah. Gabbitt is not saying, yes, you will strain your UCL if this happens, but it's just right. another protective measure that we can take. Yeah. So yeah, for like, sure. for example, and, and for example, so you guys are addressing, like, if you think of the, the injury risk as being multifaceted, which of course it is, like mechanics are definitely yeah. a piece of that. Um, without a doubt. And then we're just looking at the workload management side of things where like, how can we make sure that if we're going to ask an athlete to throw a hundred pitches that their chronic workload, that they're throwing fitness is in a good enough place to do that without mm -hmm. seeing a spike in that AC ratio. So that's kind of how we use AC ratio. If you're going to manage workload for a pitcher and like I mentioned at the front end, because we're not going to have 25 motor sleeves, we're going to much more likely have two or three. We're focusing a lot on return to competition um, and those protocols. So basically at the end of that process, we had uh, that athlete got back really strong. He ended up having, it was obviously a small sample size, but he ended up returning stronger than he had ever been. His average fastball velocity this season was what his previous max was. So he's throwing two or three miles per hour harder every time he goes out. He goes shortened season, but nine innings pitched, 11 strikeouts, no earned runs, like just shoves this year. And he's healthy as can be. Um, so we, we started to do some, some things right in that process. And then also that fall, we got news that one of our athletes was going to undergo uh, Tommy John or UCL repair. Yeah. Um, so not a full Tommy John surgery, but, uh, but a, a surgery that requires you know, quite a bit of return to throw work in the athletic training room and then a, a substantial like interval throwing program after that. And because just it was to, a surgery that go ahead. Yeah. Just to like clarify between UCL sprain, UCL repair, UCL reconstruction. Um, I'm sure some of you guys know this, but UCL sprain, um, partial tear. So it's not enough where you, I mean, you probably could get some type of surgery, but usually conservative therapy, non-operative treatment is the first right to go. Um, UCL repair with usually an augmented internal brace is a newer surgery. I mean, it was used a long time ago, but now it's been um, better with a brace, but it involves suturing the torn UCL back into its original location. So it uses that original tissue, which is why there's usually more of a um, faster healing time and faster return to competition. Um, there's still like not a lot of long-term data on that, but it is showing that there's like less gapping with fatigue, blah, 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 blah. And then UCL reconstruction is like your original Tommy John surgery, which is, um, when they harvest a graft from another body part, usually your palmaris longus, which is attended in your wrist, or if you're hamstring, if you don't have one of those and replacing that damaged tissue with the graft to essentially recreate the UCL. So that has to go through the changes of a tendon to a ligament. And, and so basically, if a, with a re UCL repair, you can get like your timeline is closer to six months of returning to play. Um, if, you know, no hiccups or anything like that, it's closer to six months as opposed to the normal Tommy John timeline. Mm -hmm. um, so so anyway, we got news that we got news that an athlete was going to go through the surgery and it gave us time then because he's going to have the surgery. He's going to do the return to throw work with Jamie and then we're going to start the throwing progression. So this is when we finally dig in and we're like going to make our own return to throw protocol essentially, or at least make some significant changes to the one that we had been using. Um, so for example, she had referenced the footwork, like the ASMI protocol says that you should be using a crow hop, 
even when you're throwing at 45 feet, even when you're throwing at 60 feet. And like anybody that's thrown a baseball 45 feet knows that that's like, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Um, it's impossible to throw a ball like a baseball throw 45 feet with a crow hop. You end up throwing a dart and it's, so, so it doesn't make a ton of sense. So we adjust, we adjusted the footwork. We adjusted intensity have you ever seen where. That video? Have you ever seen one? the ASMI video on the crow hop? No, I probably should have, honestly, I should have seen it by now, but I. I'm pretty I sure. I, I'm pretty sure I saw it w back with Tom house. And when they, when they started that whole thing and it was all uh, outfield grow up, it was like right foot first, get into it with this weird hip shoulder separation. And then like this awkward timing. And then this like, yeah, like this very weird type of throw, you know, right. Welcome I don't know back. what happened. Sorry. And, and that's the thing is, <laughs> that's, that's the thing is that the, uh, like the ASMI protocol also emphasizes that like, it's important that you throw with proper mechanics, but then it says that you should crow up at 45 feet. And so that's, that's problematic, uh, in a couple different ways. So Which, we addressed that. Go ahead. That was interesting because like, I mean, I'm not a baseball player. I've never been a softball player. Um, I know how to put a ball into a hoop, but I don't know how to throw, throw it. <laughs> so I like had no idea when I was telling him, all right, they, you should crow hop here. And he just looked back at me like, what the, why am I doing that? And I was like, I don't know. Does that feel unnatural or like just throwing that it's, slow feel it weird? It says it right here. Yeah. It says it right here yeah. on the right. Yeah. I was like, just listen to this. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, and that's what so my experience was too, by the way, go ahead. Yeah. So we made adjustments with the footwork. We made adjustments with intensity where we're not using strictly distance anymore. We're using a percent of their previous max velocity. So for example, if you and I went through the same protocol, John, it wouldn't make sense for us to both throw 40 feet or 60 feet or whatever, because you throw a lot harder than I do. If I'm working from a previous max velocity of let's say 78 miles an hour, if I'm being generous um, with how, with the shape I'm in right now, like, <laughs> that's a different distance than somebody who's working at a previous max velocity of 95. Mm -hmm. um, and when you're just using distance, it doesn't really give you the ability to account for that. So we started using percent of max velocity and progressing using that and using a radar gun to measure it. So it wasn't a guess at RPE. It was just straight up like the numbers there. Um, we changed the mound progression where we don't need to get you to throw 160 feet and then come back on the mound and throw 50% because there's a lot of, there's research that shows that throwing off a mound, if you're throwing 70 miles an hour on flat ground and 70 miles an hour off of a mound, that you're not actually throwing, it's not more stressful on your arm to be throwing off the mound. It's possibly less. Um, so we are kind of accounting for that where we're getting them up to hundred percent before they get on the mound. And then once they're on the mound, like we, yeah, we might go down to like 80% as they acclimate to the slope for their mechanics, but we're not trying to go all the way back to 50% and have them lob a ball off of a mound for four weeks. Um, so we, we've kind of mapped all of this out and, and got to use that protocol. And we started to collect data. We built a system for data collection using the modus sleeve where we're tracking velocity, shoulder, external rotation, torque on the arm, arm speed, all of it. And we're just kind of Workload. tracking yeah. that data. And, and, and yeah, and one day workload, which to be honest, even this past spring when we were doing this rehab, we were underutilizing one day workload. Mm -hmm. um, so during that whole process, we actually found out a freshman that had come in that past fall was also going to end up getting a bracing surgery. So we knew we were going to do this again. And unfortunately, started, but fortunately, yeah, unfortunately, we, we talked about the fact that hopefully we get really good at this process and then never have to do it again. Mm -hmm. Um 
but but basically we knew we were going to do it again so we started to rework the process even more and then we got shut down obviously so so basically as soon as we got shut down the next week i took i started taking the modus sleeve over to the local park and throwing the throwing progression that we had mapped out we had made a spreadsheet that could calculate acute to chronic ratio if you plugged in a one-day workload so like let's say i have a one-day workload of four workload units what will that do to my ac ratio and i was able to map this out over the course of 120 days of progression and now we can test it um, so what i've been doing for the past few weeks and will continue to do is i'm throwing the asmi protocol so whatever is prescribed for that day and a return to competition and i'm also throwing this new protocol that we mapped out and i'm comparing what they do to the ac ratio what they do like how they progress chronic workload and things like that and it's it's obviously way too early to make any conclusions um, but i've seen other models where they've mapped out asmi protocols and other typical protocols that modus has put out and they're are often spikes in the AC ratio using the traditional return to throw mod models that like most orthopedic places prescribe. Mm -hmm. um, and so there's a, basically what we're finding using this data is that there's a, there's going to be a better way to do this. There's going to be a more objective way to do it that can use one day workload that can be individualized to the athlete and adjust for those things that a traditional throwing protocol wouldn't adjust for. That's exciting. For yeah. Sure. There's definitely value in it, like from an individual aspect. I don't know if you hit on this when I got shut out, but like being able to individualize it to each specific athlete, just like we should be doing with any rehab, right? So you can have a guy that does, doesn't throw as hard. You can have a guy that throws a lot harder. You can have somebody that has a little bit more pain or soreness throughout his UCL, and you can adjust the workloads based on how they are feeling. I just think, um, did you explain what one-day workload was? I missed I must have missed that too. I, yeah, I touched briefly on the AC ratio and one-day workload. That's okay. the total stress of the, of, that you put on the arm for that day. Yeah, exactly. So I just think it's been interesting to watch Wes throwing in a park on like certain days where it takes less throws for him to get to the same amount of workload than it could like on a different day where it would take him more throws to get the same amount of workload just because of the way his arm is feeling that day. Um, I just think that's cool because we can take into account the different intensities of each throw every time a person throws, no matter what the day is, and still feel safe about progressing them not too hard, but also not too slow for too long based on their return to throw. So it's, it gives a lot of freedom to the athlete. If you say, if I told you, John, that you're throwing today was you're going to throw up to not that you have to throw this distance, but that you're going to throw up to 75% of your max. And you're going to do that until you hit six workload units. Okay. That might not mean anything to you right now, but what you're going to get a feel for over the course of the program is, okay, I can, slowly ramp up to 75% and I can make as many throws there as I want. And I you're check capped out my, at a velocity. Yeah, you're capped, at, you're capped at a specific velocity. So you can take as much time as you want to get up to that velocity. You can make your throws at that velocity, check your one day workload. And when you're done, like when you hit six, you're done. It's not, oh, well, I've got to make 120 throws. It's just get yourself warm, get to this velocity range, don't go over this cap. And that's your work for the day. And it's, it's a lot easier to individualize when that's the plan than it is to say, John, go throw 120 throws and we'll, and we'll hope that the workload is right. And then we can also measure it from an athletic training standpoint, we can also have some, a uh, little bit more of an idea if they do come in the next day and they're feeling pretty sore. Um, we do have an idea of like how to adjust instead of saying, Oh, okay, well, we'll just take one day and then the next day we'll do the same thing kind of thing. 
That's uh, that, that's interesting because uh, what I think about um, that process and how to streamline it, because that's always been my obsession of machines is like, how do you efficiently get to wherever you're trying to go and everything? And um, I, I've actually rehabbed a couple guys back from throwing three exactly to, to do Tommy John and they're all they're all fine. So everything you're saying makes sense. I don't have the knowledge or the vocabulary to describe what I'm seeing, but I, I do know what you're talking about as far as days and stuff up in there. And so even that throwing protocol that didn't make sense to me where it's like you get to 120 and then you go on the mound and you start back at 50, right? Mm -hmm. Like I've done two pitchers and a catcher. And I always felt like um, a little bit more on the Jaeger side where it's like, I don't even want to get on the mound until I can long toss 300, right? That just seems like a safer yeah. way to go about it, you know? And so, and, yeah. You know, and, and, and long tossing 300, like there's, as you know, there's so many different ways to do it. Like I can throw considerably farther when I almost aim ridiculously higher than, than I ever should, you know? And so, um, Jaeger talked about, uh, long toss, um, on the day that you and I went to different spots. And the significant thing to me that really made sense was the higher that you throw as you go throwing, the easier your body learns layback that day. And I was like, that is tremendous because you got to think of, you know, we've been doing it with a lot of our kids. We got a Dominican kid, for example, who has just terrible external rotation. But if you listen to a story like you guys would know, hasn't hadn't thrown for three years, got hurt at 12, um, hurt his shoulder at 12 and kind of modified how he was throwing from there. Didn't really do any rehab. So it obviously healed back terribly. And I don't remember what he started at um, with us. Um, but if you see his day one to there, it's unbelievable how much more layback and how much more looser his arms got, you know, and I'm yeah. sure you guys would know the specifics to that. But my question to you, um, Jamie and, and Wes is in these, this rehab process, have you guys, um, have, have you been around anybody directly that you've rehabbed back from Tommy John at, at a, at a high level? At a high level in terms yeah, of I like mean, professional like college baseball? Or, College to professional. Have you rehabbed anybody back from there? Yeah. I mean, I've done my fair share of Tommy John surgeries or UCL repairs or UCL sprains, flexor pronator mass strains, like those kind of things um, in a college level. Um, now, I am still really early in my career, so I do not consider myself an expert by any means. And I'm constantly trying to learn more and more and learn from those experts. But um, yeah, like I've done a few UCL repairs. UCL reconstructions um, from not just baseball, but also gymnasts, acrobatics, and tumblers, people that need to weight bear onto those um, upper extremity limbs to gymnasts, things like that. That's crazy to me. Yeah, that it's, you're, you're that early in your career and you've already experienced that many injuries. It's and like, of it's kind of sad. I mean, fortunately, but also unfortunately, um, most of the UCL repairs and reconstructions that I've dealt with besides the ones here at Hamlin have been contact. So there's been some type of traumatic event, like a gymnast or an acrobatic and tumbler. Um, there's been like one or two that were more chronic um, that were like gymnasts. And then a couple from baseball that were obviously um, there was one acute one chronic. So I've had a fair share of, but again, consider myself no expert. <laughs> When I think yeah, I just right. kept on hearing like Jagger, just like listen to your arm and that you guys are just, uh, you're just quantifying that. Yeah, for sure. Definitely. I yeah. think one aspect too, that um, is really, I'm not really sure how much weight it holds yet, but I feel like we'll be able to learn more as we continue to use this model, but is the gain in external rotation at the beginning of a program. So the modus sleeve can calculate the shoulder external rotation stress, the max and the average throughout the throwing protocol. 
Um, and being able to gain that first, I think is super important before we start to throw hard, right? And then on top of that, watching how their dynamic external rotation is gaining and then making sure on the preventative side that we're continuing to keep that passive range of motion as well. So I think there's some connection there. There's some weight there. I just don't know how much yet or like where we're going to put that in. But I do think that was one of the first things that we looked at when we started using the modus sleep as well. That's yeah. I, I can't wait to follow this little study you guys are doing with this. This is exciting. Yeah, it is and that, fun. And that would make sense why the frequency of throwing is such a big thing is if you just have to keep that extra rotation conditioned at low effort. So it's... Yeah. yeah. Sorry, Wes, I keep but, interjecting. But I do think that is really the frequency of throwing is really cool too because the ASMI model, you throw one day on, one day off, one day on, one day off. With this model that we're using in workload, you can so two days in a row, take a day off, two days in a row, take a day off. So you have more low level intensities, but more frequency to build up that chronic workload at a safe level versus that up, down, up, down spike. And and it's not something you'd be able to do, I don't think, if you weren't actually looking at workload, right? Correct. Because if, yeah. we go, if we go two days on, one day mm -hmm. off, two days on, two days off, which is what our, our seven day, like that's what the one week looks like. The first day of throwing out of the two is always a lower workload day and then a little bit higher Then a day off, go back to the low workload and then your highest workload of the week. And it's kind of setting up for down. That's the way that it works for the first eight weeks, but setting up for down the road, the idea that like a pitcher might throw a bullpen and then eventually go live. And if we want them to get up to hundred percent twice in a week, like we're, we can build that calendar out. The other nice thing about doing two days on, uh, one day off, two days on, two days off is that you can add that third day of throwing on week nine, where it's two days on, one day off, three days on, one day off. And you can kind of blend into the point where eventually you're throwing six days out of the week. You've got the chronic workload built up. And as long as you adjust one day workload, you're, you're not ever at risk for, well, not ever at increased risk for injury there. Um, it's I mean, just, that's just a lot I was going to ask you the next question. I was like, what about guys like me from... 10 that all I wanted to do was throw. Like I did not have yep. an arm problem until I changed this mechanical thing, you know? And so I just threw in and playing catch to me and my dad was just, you know, you started off playing catch and yeah. I end up trying to burn his chest for a couple. And then he'd be like, Hey, don't do too much. And that was it, you know? So, <laughs> right. And I think it's just, and, and Cass mentioned to listen to your arm. This is something we've been preaching to, to guys since, I mean, the last four years at Hamlin, essentially, um, that there's there's some amount of self-regulation that happens without the one-day workload yeah. or measurement that you you can know that you need a lighter day or hey i'm going to get a little bit higher intensity today this just helps us to actually throttle that when we're at like when we're working with a particularly high-risk athlete who's recovering from an injury um, and give them an objective number to, to throttle that along with yeah, the totally. miles it's, per it's hour very it, it makes it seem like a you know, we always talk about the level up systems of things of like, like you were talking about goal oriented, Jamie, about like, okay, once you get to here, we got to get to there and then we got to get to there. And like that progression is, is important. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. It, it, yeah. And so then basically the whole time you're just working to, uh, Modus has mentioned, I can't remember what research or who did the research, but essentially that 15 chronic workload units is the average of a starting pitcher in the major league. So if we get like somebody to the point. Um, okay. It, I don't know. So Whatever. Doesn't matter. Don't, don't quote me. Somebody <laughs> smarter than me came up with the fact that the average chronic workload for a starting pitcher midseason is 15 chronic workload units. So if we map this all out, we can map out 
how much one day workload every single day you need to eventually get to 15 chronic workload units. And we found that we can get there in about 120 days without spiking uh, the AC ratio. Now, like Jamie said, we have way more questions than answers at this point. We're not experts. I have this mapped out in a Google Sheets spreadsheet. Like I, the reason I'm throwing it is because I want to know. Yeah. I want to know how that feels. I want to know if we see these spikes. I want to see if it's a reasonable amount of workload on any given day. Um, that's that's why we're testing it. Not because this is the end all be all, but because we want to know. And I'm sure that just, I mean, through three weeks, we've already come up with more questions that we have, more things we need to tweak. Um, that's really what the process is about, is that at the end of, I don't know, June, hopefully we'll have an even more refined system to use the next time if, you know, if it comes up. Yeah. So. Yeah, I would agree well, with that this. That was a lot. <laughs> I would agree with you saying that it's like not an end all be all, right? I mean, this is just improving our return to throw and our return to competition protocols because right now we just didn't feel comfortable with the one that we were giving. So just knowing that it's not just the return to competition, mm -hmm. but also taking a look at what we're doing pre-throw, what we're doing post-throw, what we're doing on our off days, things like that, that we can continue to keep the arm healthy as possible. Yep. So I think what's interesting is I think, um, and Wes and I have talked about this in past conversations, um, is, is there's going to constantly, unless something changed, there's going to constantly be this world where um, that process happens slower than I can train people, right? And I'm not saying this isn't, this isn't my idea, right? This is just constantly going to be the process of like how, how we gather data, and, and how we disseminate that into to human beings, right? And so um, it's really interesting how, like how much of this is aligning with what we already know, right? And how much of this is just affirming the things that we're already doing. But then simultaneously, like, why is it 2020 before somebody like you guys are doing these things? And I'm well, only just I mean, saying this to just to say, fair, hey, let's. There's yeah, I was going to say, I was going to say, there's people like, that are not, probably doing is, it. But I understand your point is taken, no. but like, I don't want to present as the first people that have ever considered looking at these things. It's right. just that we're no, learning. But, but listen, but okay. So you guys, are, you guys, you, the thing is, is that you guys are so Midwestern. It's so funny because like, I find myself like doing the same thing is like, no, you, you get on and this, this conversation, it's this is a different level of a conversation, right? And so when we're talking about return to throw program, like I have to know where you are in this conversation. I have to know, I have a lot of context behind this, right? And so I, I'm just simply saying like, for, for the record, the people that are watching this, like you guys are, you guys are very what proficient in, in this conversation, right? And I know you're on the beginning stages of this, but for people that are watching, like this is how intense it has to be. You have to really understand how to do your, like you can't miss anything. Um, and that's why people don't do this. So that's what I'm trying to get at is like, for those of you that are wondering, like, this is the kind of level of intellect that you need to just start having the freaking conversation. Um, and so when we get hard on, and here I am, this is, this is the bridge that we need to be, I think is like, there's going to be a ton of people that are 30, 40 years older than us in our industries that we're going to have to have conversations with and not be disrespectful of their wisdom, right? And and understand that like, these are conversations that we need to find the common ground in because how many people are going to want to have that conversation? Like really, how many high school coaches want to do what you're doing right now? I mean, I'm sure there I, are, there are, I, 
I think there are and that's, high school coaches that would like to do what's best by their players um, that, that just want to be presented with the information of, oh, this is like, if this is how I should do it. And maybe I'm being optimistic, but if, if they can be presented with a, a, a safer way or a safer alternative, that I, I think they jump at the opportunity. And I, I think we're just, we're just trying to figure it out. We're just trying to ask the right, right questions. And find this the is not a criticism of can. what you're doing. Yeah. This is a criticism right. of how challenging it is for anybody to get anywhere with these, with um, just this in general, you know, yeah, I mean, it's so hard to stay objective with this. Yeah. Like when Wes came to me the day after I told one of our athletes to like do that part of the throwing protocol, I could have been like, okay, Wes, see ya, like, let me do my job, you know, but instead, like, you just have to be open to those conversations and like answer the question and be like, you know, I don't have an answer for that. Like, let's try to figure one out together with his pitching knowledge, my background in athletic training and physiology and whatnot. And like, you can have that same conversation between someone who's more old school versus new school or whatever that is, but just like gaining those different perspectives is huge. Yeah. And, and I'm just, I'm just, you guys have a great relationship and, it, and it's been yeah. fun to see how you guys work together because you, I, my blood got going a little bit earlier in this conversation. And I was going to say something to you, Wes, just because I'm thinking about other trainers that I have worked with and other trainers that I know exist. And I know it's very, very like, go ahead. Yeah. But, and, Jamie. and to be, well, it, it's a, oh, it's no. a huge credit to Jamie. It's a huge credit to Jamie that she didn't just say, this is the protocol, right? That she's the type of person that was like, you know what, let's find, see if we can find better um, answers to these questions. Um, because also if she had said, you know, uh, this is the protocol, this is what we're going to use. I don't know if I would have gone down the <laughs> rabbit hole on my own. Um, I probably wouldn't have, if I'm being honest. So the fact that she was open to, to looking for better answers um, and continuing to ask questions, it was huge. And it can have, I mean, an improved throwing protocol could have pretty significant implications across all athletes, not just um, injured ones, not just ones that are recovering from injury. Yeah. So it's it's just yeah, trying to no, totally. further that conversation. I, I think, I think a, a, a general idea for what I'm grasping from it is like the old school, like this old school, new school thing is, is, is weird because I, I don't think that's the argument. I think right. it's like, right. the, I think a better way to describe it would be throw all the time or not throw all the time. Because like that's those are the like the like all the old school guys that I talk to and, and and talk about what they did. They're like, no, we threw all the time. We threw and and you listen to these stories of these guys like that they that they kept their range of motion like you're talking about by playing catch with their kids or throwing you know easy or here and there. And then their progression of their velocities over their careers maintained and they didn't have as much injuries and stuff from there. So. You know, I, yeah. I, I find it rather interesting because you can apply these ideas of what you guys are saying across different styles and countries. I think you just kind of have to, I mean, healthcare, athletics, everything is constantly changing, right? So you just have to continue to ask questions, continue to learn new things as new technology comes out, as we throw faster, as we throw harder, as we throw more. Um, I mean, if you just look at like the evolution of Tommy John surgery, I mean, Guys, when they used to throw and like they had an injury, they just called it like dead arm and they were done with their professional career. Like that was it. Right. It's just like, oh, dead arm. Sorry. And then we came to a Tommy John surgery and then we came to a UCL. Like, I mean, there's just evolution of everything. So we just have to keep up with that. And, and so that's exactly what I was making. My point is like this is we, it's helpful for everybody on board. Right. Whether you're a coach, whether you're a player, whether you're a parent. 
to put things into perspective and that like if you don't have a mode of sleep at home that there are things like listen to your arm and it's helpful to understand like <laughs> hey if i could be, have a mode of sleep on me at all times like there are ideals in this situation and there are like if you know if you can train with somebody that um are, is able to do what jamie and wes is talking about right you should be gravitating towards these kind of people but simultaneously like don't overthink this at the same time right like be able to take the the principles that we're talking about and and apply them to what works for you because this is this is a lot of work right it's a lot of work for us to offer our information in the way that we do and it's a lot of work for you to offer that the information in that way so that's all i was trying to bring to light is yeah. hey parents at home like you know what are you taking away from this like you know so anyway get your kid a mode of sleep yeah <laughs> yeah well, maybe that, that wasn't the best conclusion but <laughs> get your kid no, a mode of sleep. no i'm just kidding kind of <laughs> I think just the, the knowledge of, the, I think the importance, the overall takeaway in my, in my end, if you're a parent that isn't going to get a mode of sleep, isn't going to start gathering this data, is just the overall importance of, of arm fitness to use something other than chronic workload. How much are you they? Can't just, so they're $150 retail, um, but in my experience, you can find an online coupon or something on Dick's Sporting Goods and get them for a little bit cheaper if you time it out right. Um, so in the big scheme of things, pretty reasonable considering you're going to, you can wear it for the rest of your baseball career. Um, but even if you don't have one, the idea just that like, Hey, my arm needs to be in shape for a certain workload. That's, that's the big takeaway. If I'm a parent or a coach of youth athletes is that I can't just jump in and throw a hundred throws in a game. I have to build up some sort of fitness, some sort of chronic workload, um, to, to just kind of take that uh, or lessen that risk. Mm -hmm. I had a question when you were talking about the 15 um, units, is there any like conversation about trying to build up to 20, like to try to, you know, have a capacity of 18, knowing that you're only needing so, 15? That's, that's a good question. I don't, I don't have a, a great answer, but I do believe that there is research that's been done or, or people who have looked at chronic workload and that there's, there's two ends of the spectrum as far as injury risk and in that you can get to the point where you have so much chronic workload that now you're at increased risk of injury um, for having that too, having too high of a chronic workload. I can't cite numbers. I don't want to pretend to have that answer, but I, but I feel like I've read places where there is an upper end. It's not like you want to get to 30 chronic workload units so that you can throw 400 pitches like they do in the Japan high school tournament. Like you just, there's, there's an, there's a, there's a sweet spot in there where you don't want your chronic workload to be one because then you can't throw very much without hurting yourself, but you don't want it to be, you know, 92 either. Yeah. So. Just like from a physiology standpoint, I mean, your stress strain curve lines up perfectly with that. You don't want to stress too much. You don't want to strain too much. You want to find that happy medium where like over time, we're not stressing too much at little increments or we're not spiking too fast, that kind of thing. Well, it's interesting because like the, you said Japan, right? And we were talking about the Korean bullpens, yeah. the 300 pitch bullpens. And yeah. Stuff. And that, yeah. Similar in Japan. It's like, I think I might have lost you. Wes, can you hear them? No. Freeze frame. Freeze frame. Well. <laughs> They'll figure it out. No mailman came by for your dogs. No, we they are sleeping on the couch quietly. Wow, very yeah. nice of them. Yep. yep, it is. They're cooperating. I'm trying to find that 
one research article because you sent to me a while back of like the 15 chronic workloads um like the 15 i can't remember where you sent me that yeah i'm not i'm not sure i just know that i it's in my head from somewhere i didn't yeah it up. and it was professional um, i think it was like professional baseball players and then when you talk to the guy on from modus didn't he say something about like the actually the guy from uh i i think that Brian from Modus mentioned 15, but also when I was talking to Casey yes. Mulholland from Kinetic Pro, he had mentioned, uh, like for a youth pitcher, for example, they don't need to get to 15. They need to stay. They could probably oh, only yeah, need to get right. up to six or seven because their workload isn't going to be as high and all of that. Yeah. So welcome back, guys. Sorry. We just... Yeah. So no, sorry about we, that. Pick, no, that's fine. We you I lost you when you were talking about the Korean bullpens. Yeah. Um, uh, so what I was saying was that to me, like my personal strategy to my arm was like, okay, build up the volume of it to like it can handle this amount of stressful throws right and then in the game i should never use that capacity like i should never go right. to that end range of exhaustion but i need to build up beyond that in order to be able to use it and that's you know he you know i go to tj and throw 150 pitches and everybody thinks i'm crazy but i'm like i'm fine so you know so i think the the point with at 15 chronic workloads or like chronic workload units, you can throw a crap load in a game. Like if, so if you got up to 16, 17 chronic workload units, you can go out and your one day expenditure can be really high at that point. So that's, that's taking into account. Like if you get to 15, you can do a lot of throwing at high stress and not reach your upper limit, not spike your AC ratio because you've got that base fitness level. Um, I think if you, if you were to have a chronic workload of 20 units, and again, I'm just, this is my best guess. It would mean that you could throw hundreds of pitches without spiking your AC ratio. That doesn't mean that's ideal. Good for you. Right. Yeah. That just means that it just means that you could do that without spiking the AC ratio. Um, so, so I think 15 chronic workload units gives you plenty of room for letting it rip for a while uh, without spiking that ratio ratio. Wow. Okay. Well, I want to be respectful of you guys time. We've been going for like, an hour and 15 minutes, but yeah. with some weird, um, you know, Wi-Fi issues on our end. Sorry about that. I yeah. Think we got I just, can I uh, say one more thing? Sure. No, no, no. Go ahead. Sorry. Please. Um, just going back to like the way beginning of this, when we were talking about like my return to throw process in the rehab world, comparing it with like your three rules, basically my goal is to make the baseball player an athlete, right? The athlete an athlete. So we are working on, yes, things specific to throwing, but like building up a strong rotator cuff, scapular stabilizer muscles are good ratios, those kind of things. But like being able to ro thoracically rotate, that's an athlete move. Being able to get your hips and hip mobility, that's an athlete move. It's not really specific to baseball. So I think that I started off poorly in explaining myself when it came to that. So I just wanted to clarify that. No, no, I that, think that, our rehab you, I love the way rules. you clarified it though. I, totally. love, I love the way you clarify it though. Cause like, those are, you know, the thing that always scared me as like through my whole career is, is the athletic trainer uses these words and he and I get into it, you know, cause he corrects me for the exact things that I'm saying, but that it helps. Right. But I'm just going on the best way I can describe the feeling because I'm always into the feel. Like yeah. if I can communicate this feeling to the athlete better then I know there's the learning curve for what they're going to need to do to be able to throw more often is, is going to help. And then now we can work right. on the skill. Of it. You so know, the way that you're saying wrote like move across your body or whatever, no arms cross uh, or the arm crosses, um, both arms cross the body is my way of saying, thoracic rotation right but i'm not telling exactly, an athlete yeah. we're building thoracic rotation i'm just letting them do that totally. 
Awesome. Awesome. Okay, so Weston is all over Twitter. Um, tell us about your social media stuff. Um, Jamie, uh, your Instagram, you've been doing that almost daily, it seems like. So make, tell us about those things and where we can find you guys. Go ahead, Wes. Yeah, so uh, you can follow on Twitter, um, at, coach under, at Coach underscore Jermaine on Twitter and at Coach Jermaine on Instagram. Um, my Instagram is more more uh, regularly updated with videos and images from the data collection process. Um, and also you can go to millcitythrowing.com, which is where we're going to do a little bit longer form blog posts about the process, weeks in review, comparing the protocols and everything that we're kind of learning and adjusting on the fly. So when, when can we have you guys back on to update us on that? Say again. When, when would be I'll like a good frame? No, I'm just, I want to know what their time frame is, is what I'm talking about. Like, well, when we do should you do it like after general... this possible UCL repair, if we can ever, if I can so ever I'm sorry, I'm just on looking for a general time frame. That's all. Are we, we talking like four <laughs> months? Are we talking, should we so, check no, in I a think month that and we'll see have, what's up? Or? I, I think in probably five to eight weeks, we should have a pretty good understanding okay. because at that point I'll be, the Dang. both protocols will be up to a pretty high intensity. Um, to the point where we'll know if our AC calculations are correct. And mm -hmm. if they are at that point, then I will be able to confidently say that like our protocol isn't going to spike AC ratio, but right now it's so early. Like, so because of the nature of acute or chronic workload, like it takes 28 days of data before your chronic workload is correct. Like where it's spot on. And I'm not yeah. even at 28 days yet. Right. So, so it gets more accurate from 14 days to 28. It's getting more accurate over that time, but I'm not at 28 days yet. So I can't make any like real conclusions. It's just all of everything right now is based on a spreadsheet. So I would say once I get to like week 10, week eight, week 10, I'll have a pretty good idea. Hopefully. That's mm -hmm. exciting. Okay, cool. Right on. Yeah. Okay. And, uh, uh, Jamie, did you want to tell everybody where, how they can follow you and, and yeah, sure. I obviously have a little bit more than just the baseball side of things, but if you want to learn a little bit about what athletic trainers do, um, and some of my opinions and views on things, I'm at mindful.mvmt mindful movement. So um, you can follow me on Instagram there. I don't have a Twitter. Wes always tells me that I need to get a Twitter, but um, we, that's pretty yeah, much using it. Both, using both is definitely vital for sure. Yeah, I yeah. haven't really gotten into the social media thing until recently. So you can take a look if you want to. It's a world. It's it is a, a world. It's a, it's a world. It's hard work. And, yeah, we, we work hard. We try. You know, I can see you guys too. <laughs> Okay, well, um, you know, I appreciate you guys taking a little time out of your day and coming on. I think this was incredible and very yeah. informative, and I'm excited to follow along. You've got me awesome. um, a fan of this process. I want to see, I want to see stuff. I already have suggestions on things, um, and I'll let Wes know about that because I immediately thought of something um, when you're talking about motor awesome. stuff. So, yeah, we'd uh, love to hear. Some, well, thanks for having us on. Cool stuff, definitely. Thanks for Thank coming you, on. Guys. I appreciate it, guys. Definitely. Yeah, Good luck to you. Us. You guys go follow them. Don't forget to rate, review, subscribe. We'll put out some stuff. This will be on YouTube right now, right away, and we'll go from there. Yeah. Uh, shoot, I should. I was gonna say who tomorrow is. Oh, tomorrow yeah. is the Vanimal. Well, hold on. Before that, we have David Rankin from oh, yeah. Pitch Logic today, later T today. Tonight, tonight. Oh, yeah, cool. four thirty. And then tomorrow is awesome. Vance Morley, the Vanimal. The van. The awesome. Van good talking to you guys. Mr. Yeah, good talking. Mr. 97. Thank you guys. Anyway, Thanks. sounds good. Appreciate it. Hold Thank on you. one second.